0: You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Cliff Berg. Cliff is, a, is co-founder and managing partner of Agile2 Academy. Cliff is an agile and DevOps advisor and consultant and he is one of the authors of the book titled Agile to The Next Iteration of Agile. Today, Cliff and I are discussing the strengths of Agile, its possible weaknesses and ways to address them. We'll also explore signs of Agile thinking at Elon Musk's companies, SpaceX and Tesla. Cliff, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Tim, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: For me too, thank you. So in 2001, 17 software developers descended from a mountain, With a document they titled uh, manifesto for agile software development what is agile software development
2: well you'll get very different answers depending on who you ask Um, the the term agile of course is an english language term so you know we can look at it from that perspective you know the generic meaning of agile the, the way I tend to view Agile, when someone talks about Agile in the context of, of the Agile movement, the Agile development process, whatever, uh, <clears throat> to me, that's a proper noun. You know, I know that Dave Thomas has said, no, it's not a proper noun. You know, it's an adjective. Yeah, it's an adjective, but it's also a proper noun. You know, Dave can't do anything about that. <laughs> you know, I love Dave. He's a you know, great butt. It is what it is, it's become a proper noun because there is an agile movement. You know, there is the agile manifesto. There are agile practices and agile teams. The word has come to mean something. It's come to mean a lot of things. So, you know, when we talk about agile, we're really talking about all of that stuff. Uh, And it's distinct from the word agile in the dictionary uh, and in fact, some dictionaries now have agile in the context of agile software development as a second meaning, Right, as a second meaning. It's not the same meaning. <clears throat> so, it, you know, it depends. And, you know, if your focus is on agile practices, then that's what you mean. If your focus is on the agile movement, that's what you mean. If it's on the agile manifesto, then that's what you mean. So the word is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, we, we need to be clear about what we actually mean when we say it.
1: So Canadian business academic Henry Mintzberg talks about the fallacy of prediction and formalization. Uh, Sometimes strategies must be left as broad visions, not precisely articulated to adapt to a changing environment. So that phrase brings to me maybe small A agile and maybe even capital A agile. I'm going to make a statement here and you can correct me on it because I'm making a few assumptions here. But. In my mind, iterative methods like, I classify Agile as an iterative method, uh, Agile, Lean Startup, Design Thinking, they all seem to be bent, built on the assumption that we don't know everything and we never will. So mm-hmm. instead of planning, we should start experimenting. So first of all, you can correct me if some of that is wrong, but also is planning dead?
2: Absolutely not. Uh, planning is really important, but you know, we have to remember that you know, plans are plans. There are intention. You know, if you don't plan, you have no intention. What are you going to do? You know, I plan every morning. You know, I, I look at my to-do list and I move things to the top, <clears throat> you know, but and that it's a running to-do list. And some of my plans go way out into the future. But I, looked at, I look at those with skepticism, you know, and, but if you don't have a plan, you don't have a direction. Mm-hmm. You have to know where you're headed. You know, I think you mentioned uh, SpaceX in the beginning. And, and our, our book uses SpaceX as one of the case studies uh, for a reason. Uh, one of the reasons being it's not software, but it's highly agile in the mm-hmm. way it operates. And they have a plan, you know, but they're highly agile. Uh, what makes plans not effective is when you view them as final decisions where the plan is the plan, and we have to stick to the plan no matter what. And that's when the plan becomes a problem uh, rather than a, a help.
1: So what my interpretation of that, I think um, you've actually sort of commented on the possibility that Waterfall wasn't the dominant uh, project management uh, approach in all of history. <laughs> but my interpretation of the, the Agile Manifesto was that it was a reaction to waterfall. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess one thing I want to sort of examine is the possibility that all we're really saying is don't plan so far because a sprint is really a short waterfall. And the challenge, I think, becomes if we think to ourselves, instead of making it a one-year project, let's make two six-month projects so that we can get a handle on it and get a new Vista after six months. The problem is that if you're in a fairly large organization, you have multiple sprints going on at once. So you've got not only the challenge of shrinking duration, but also of integrating the different changes that are going on. How does Agile help address that?
2: Well, again, you know, it depends what you mean by Agile. And uh, people in the community have very different views, uh, would give different answers to that. Um, and, you know, one point I like to make very often when I have the opportunity is that the predominant thinking within the agile community has very much diversified and changed. If, if you look at standard narratives from the early, you know, from the first decade, uh, and compare them with, with widely accepted narratives in the second decade, today, they're markedly different. You know, the original books were, you know, about extreme programming and scrum, and <clears throat> but the books people talk about today are like Turn the Ship Around by Dave Marquette. You know, who was a submarine uh, commander? Mm, and, yes, uh, yeah, and Nicole Forsgren's Accelerate, which is you know mostly about DevOps and and organization culture. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, and the Accelerate has a whole chapter about leadership in it. You know, early Agile was very skeptical of the whole idea of leadership,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but you know, if you if you look at today, uh, I see Agile the you know one of the premier training Agile training. Organizations—they have a whole business agility curriculum. It's mostly about leadership. So, you know, so who you ask, you know, some people still very much embrace the early agile ideas, and other people embrace more recent thinking, which I think is much more solid and and, and much more realistic. Um, so, so you know, what's what's agile is is very important. You, you mentioned that sprints you know, and is a, you know, a sprint is a short waterfall. Well, I, I would say that, you know, that's a smell and to use agile vernacular, the fact that it's a short waterfall. I, I don't understand personally the need for sprints. You know, I don't get it. You know, if, if you're three weeks in, I mean, if you're three days in to working on a feature and you discover that that feature actually is not the best feature or is not a good approach, stop working on that feature. <laughs> You know,
0: Mm -hmm. don't
2: wait till the end of the sprint in order to replan. Replan right then. You know, if, if you, if you notice an impediment, don't wait for the standup the next morning, raise it right then. Um, You know, in listening to uh, you had sent me before this interview, a link to a series of an interview of uh, Dr. uh,
1: Dan Rasky.
2: Dan Raskin, who has uh, runs the, uh, COTS program at NASA. And COTS doesn't stand for commercial off the shelf. It stands for Commercial Orbit transport, Transportation System at NASA, and it's an incubator program uh, and to uh, to help startups to build you know space space systems. And uh, and he he talks there about. The you know, when he spent a year at SpaceX and he, he contrasted with NASA and he talks about how they would deal with issues instantly. That if something came up, you never waited. You 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 found the people who who, who needed to be involved in the discussion and you went to them right then. now <clears throat> you pivoted immediately. You know, so there's, you know, SpaceX is highly agile, but um. And they plan, they, they definitely plan, but all plans are tentative and their decisions as, as he states it are made based on 51% confidence. If you're, mm-hmm. you're 51% confident, you make the decision and you start and you measure. <laughs> and then if things don't work out to use his word, you backtrack, Right. but you don't wait, you know, and, um, you don't try to make plans perfect, but you do plan. So, um, you know, so you know, I, I think we need to get rid of this idea of an artificial cadence where like every two weeks or every program increment or every, like, what, what is that for? What value does that add? Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of continuous processes and, and continuous adjust, adjustment, more of a flow perspective.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Although I will say that, that uh, I think there's a natural tendency when we talk about an organization, often the way you organize things is by dividing them up. You know, when when I throw things into uh, a, a dresser, there's different drawers and some things go in this drawer and some things, of course, that won't always work season to season because my long pants won't all fit, you know? So you have to rethink the divisions that you have. Um, but the, the divisions can be time-based, like we're going to do everything in two-week chunks or quarterly or whatever. It can be divisions like... Uh, Engineering's over here and sales is over here. It could be, uh, we have a division in Australia and one in England and one in Canada, right? And and so often if you're in a stable environment, the divisions you have, they work and they continue to work. But when things are unstable or there's new opportunities, that's when you have to be consciously rethinking what those divisions are. And that's one of the things I thought was um, really what, what excited me about agile too, uh, to the extent that I've, I've read about it, it's very pragmatic. And it says, you know, that I think the first, almost the first words in the whole document, Let me sign, I I left it to the end here, but, um, the only general principle is it depends, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, I love, but it, it, you know, it, it means it does, uh, it puts the same onus that, that Elon Musk puts on us, which is um, first principles, right? And so, sorry, I'm meandering a little bit. I'll throw it back to you in a sec, but i i um, you can't spend your entire life thinking first principles because you'll never get anywhere. You have to sort of set rules of thumb and then move on. so what do you think you know i i I get the impression that agile too in in inviting us to think for ourselves. Um, is reacting to the existence of systems. There's some tension there, though, right? Systems can work for a while. So, how do you how do you uh, address that? How do you think through that tension?
2: Yeah. So, a good good example is is frameworks. You know, frameworks are good. You know, uh, like Safe has some good stuff in it. But um, I I think the wrong way to use those things, you know, or Scrum or any of these things is is to view it as like a template and just, and just try to execute it. You know, we should look at these things as sources of ideas, you know, like in, in SAFE, I like the portfolio Kanban idea. I wouldn't implement it exactly like that. I, I wouldn't, I would, I would think, what am I trying to do? What are we trying to do? And how can we solve that problem? And, and SAFE gives us a model that might inspire our thinking but mm-hmm. now we need to figure out what we wanna do. Yeah. And it might bear some resemblance or it might be quite different or it might have some elements of it in it, but we should come up with our own. We should use it as a source of ideas. Uh, and you know, if, if you wanna get consultants who, who specialize in that, that's great, but they should be consultants. They shouldn't be coming and implementing something rote. Uh, you know your organization, you have ownership of your organization. you understand your organization if you don 't own the problem you 're not going to understand the solution you 're not going to invest in the solution you 're not going to be able to revise the solution when things don 't work out because they they always don 't work out you know the, things always need adjustment, everything always depends yeah so you know if if now someone has implemented something wrote. You don't really understand why it's that way. You're not. You haven't built the mental model that you need to be able to tweak it and adjust it and everything. So um, I I I believe that you know first principles are an important starting point, but then you build up um, a a a history and you you build up things that have worked for you. So Mm -hmm. you're not always starting over. You know, one of the things we do mention in Agile too, actually, is that. A, you know, in, an organization that has many teams. When you stand up a new team, there should be a checklist of things that, that a team should think about that it should be doing or should have. But it shouldn't be like a checklist of things they must have or must mm-hmm. be doing. It should be a set of ideas because what the team's building might be very different, might be unique. You know, so, I mean, the way you build one kind of thing might be very different from how you build another thing. You know, yeah. the way you build a microservice is very different from how you build a, a mobile app. You know, so, um, so these, you know, you, you, you're right. You shouldn't always start from scratch, but you should always own the problem. You know, you should always, um, you know, you should always make your own first cut. And it's going to be wrong, and that's okay. But you start small, you experiment, you you start it in a safe context, so that when it doesn't work out that well, you're still okay, you're still alive, everyone's yeah. still alive, and you ask for help, you ask for suggestions, you talk it through, and then you improve.
1: So I, as you were as you let off with that, it made me think that. Um... The idea that we can take an existing framework that was designed around probably a circumstance that happened, you know, somewhere else and at a different time, it's almost infantilizing because you you aren't creating your own process. And if you aren't creating your own process and you can't adjust it, one of the. So the challenge there, again, and sort of the counterpoint to the idea that you shouldn't have to go first principles on everything, is that over time you develop a legacy of things that work where you are and when you are, that may not last. Um, How do you recognize when your legacy of frameworks and practices and everything else is starting to fail you, starting to fail an organization?
2: Well, you will if you're paying attention, you know, if you stop paying attention, and if, if you stop measuring outcomes and if you stop asking questions and, and looking at what's happening amount among people who are using the product and so on, you know, if you're not asking good questions, if you're asking like, you know, is our product work, working well, they'll probably say yes, it's yes, yes. But you need to be asking more open-ended questions, you know, quote unquote, open questions, like what would you really like to have? What things are you looking at? You know, and you know, I'd like to, you know, just tilt it back a little bit to what we were talking about just before, because there's a related thing that's very important, you know, about processes that um, when you end up with a process, uh, what makes it work is not the process. The process is not really what matters. What matters is that in the minds of the people who are using the process, they've built mental models of, of, Cause and effect relationships of, of how things work. And you know, you from a from the outside, it looks like they're following this process. But what's really happening is in their minds, they're making decisions because it always depends. They're making decisions and they're they're making creative actions and, and doing things. And if you just define the process for them, they don't have the mental models they need to do all that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the process is kind of like. They, they kind of don't know how to do the process. They, they, you know, they can go through the motions, but they're not really doing it. They're kind of faking it. They're, it's cargo cult. They're, they're, they're uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're checking the boxes, but they're, they're not making good decisions. They're not making good creative actions. Um, the process is not what matters. I mean, what matters is the knowledge and the behaviors. You know, like you can have a process for collaboration. Okay, what does that look like? Well, in the agile community, it's always a meeting or a live discussion. Real collaboration actually is, is talking, listening, reading, writing, and thinking. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> real collaboration over time. Um, but if you were to just define a process like, okay, first, first we talk, then we write, then we read, then, you know, people would do that. They go through motions, but it wouldn't work well. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes it work well is when people collaborate effectively because they know how, because they have a high EQ and they, they've, they've learned how to listen well to others and, and they've learned how to articulate things and have dialectic discussions. So, um, you know, the process is not what matters. If you have people who have the right skills, they'll come up with a process. Right. The process is the end point. It's not the starting point.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I have a recipe for pizza. You know, I make pizza from scratch (laughs) and uh, when you move from house to house and you're in a different oven, you know, the temperature is not quite right. There are things that change. And and if all you're doing is following the recipe, you may have burnt pizza every time. And if you don't have the knowledge to know what to tweak, you know, what to play with uh, you're stuck. So yeah, I, I I can certainly see the need to, to be able to adjust um,
2: let, let, let me pivot on that if I could, yeah. on that example. Because that example, I'd like to make a point there. That making a pizza in your oven, you don't have to make any decisions because you know it works. So it's a repeatable process. It's like manufacturing the same product. Yeah. But product development's not like that. No. Product development no. You're always making something different. The product's always changing. That's the whole point. Otherwise, you wouldn't need engineers. You know, so it's product development is like if every time you make that pizza, you go to a different house. You never make it twice in the same house, Right, same oven. And so you're always deciding, you're always adjusting. And so if you just follow the process, you'll always have crappy pizza.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and I don't want to belabor pizza because it's just making me hungry. But, um, <laughs> you know, when when you think of uh, what What one tends to do if you cook pizza every weekend, for example, is you you assemble your ingredients, you turn on the oven before you start, you roll out the dough while somebody else is shredding the cheese. You get very lean, you get into the the whole lean space, which is really thinking through the step by step process and that I think is one of the another tension is between this idea of agility and being able to change your mind and change your process and even change your product runs up against the people who are like, I'm in the middle of optimizing things here. So there's that tension between um, effectiveness coming up with the right thing and efficiency doing the same thing over and over again. Um, where, where does Lean brush up against Agile in your view? How do you address that tension?
2: Yeah, yeah, so again, it's a judgment call, it depends. You know, it's, it, there is no like permanent fixed process for Even for a given product, because products change over time,
0: people mm-hmm.
2: need to decide, and you know that's where you know a template falls down, because they they're, they're, these are always trade offs. You know, like how much testing should you do? It depends. It, it depends on what kinds of things you might you know might fail, um, you know, and what the cost of failure is, and and what your actual quality is today. You know, are you testing enough? So you know there is there is a constant tension. Over repeatability and innovation, um, you know um, how you know how 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 much work do our feedback loops add to us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know how much time should we spend in improving those so that they run really quickly and smoothly, versus you know time spent on getting a new feature out? You know those those are trade-offs. There isn't one answer, and and people have to be making judgments about those things. Uh, there, it's not a process. It's, you know, you, you should be in the process, in the process, I don't know, an alternative word but <laughs> in the, in the, because, you know, coming up with processes is a process. Yes. And in the in the process of, of figuring out what to do in product development, you, you have to, you know, you look at how you have been doing it. What are your pipeline your delivery? What are your, your delivery pipelines, your your, your pro- I like to call them, you know, your 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 product conceptualization, des- product design, and uh, product engineering, and 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 value delivery stream, <laughs> for a mouthful, because it's different <laughs> from the customer value stream. That's right. how the customer uses the product. But um, but anyway, you know that delivery stream. You know how are you designing that over time? How are you changing that and pivoting that? Over time, those are judgment calls.
1: So um, I make no secret of my fascination with SpaceX and Tesla. And and one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show is you've you've you you are an agile expert, small A, big A, agile 2, whatever. You're in the agile space uh, and you wrote an article uh, talking about agile at SpaceX Um, and. To to sort of kick things off, one of the things in it that you argue is that the space tech industry has been stuck in a loop for 40 years. How so?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, um, you know, Mr. Raskin echoes that. You know, he talks about when he was a teenager and he and his friends saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and it was 1968 when they saw that. And then the next year we landed on the moon and everybody back then just assumed that by the year 2000 we would have big orbiting space stations mm-hmm. and spaces on the moon and mars and all kinds of things and then nothing happened um, you know so so there are a lot of people who feel let down and you know there are some individuals who have kind of rekindled the dream so to speak uh, Elon Musk is one of them uh, Jeff Bezos is another you know and this isn't not about lauding individuals this this is about just being grateful that you know, this industry has come back to life and, uh, you know, SpaceX, uh, is I think really a fantastic ex- example of agility, you know, number one, they don't use any methodology. You know, you'd never hear the word scrum mentioned. Um, you know, what, what they do is, is they, uh, they, they number one, they never wait, mm-hmm. you
0: know?
2: Uh, if something needs to happen, they, there's a famous example, and and we have to remember that you know not everyone's SpaceX and not everyone should be SpaceX or Tesla because you know when people are working for an organization that has like a dream and a goal to do something great, they'll work eighty hours a week. Yeah, they want to. They're not being exploited. They want to. They want to do that. So imagine if there's a humanitarian organization that's trying to feed starving people. The people working for that might work 80 hours a week because they mm-hmm. want, you know, they're trying to change the world. Well, SpaceX is trying to change the world. So, yeah, people work long hours. But that's that's not the aspect that I highlight when I write about SpaceX. You know, I mean, yes, that is true, but what makes them interesting to me is not how much they work, but how they work. They never wait to do things. You know, there's a famous example where uh, at a, a new facility that they had built in Texas and the progress was slow and Elon Musk arrived and called an all hands meeting, which was about 200 people or so. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk style, the meeting happened to be at 1 a.m. on Saturday night.
0: <laughs> yes. And
2: this was mandatory. Yeah. But again, that's because you're working for a, a, a startup that has a dream. You know, so ordinarily it would be during business hours, but, but the point is he didn't say, Oh, you all suck. Um, You work harder. He didn't say that, you know, he, he said, how can we go faster? And and people said, we need more people. And, And he said, Oh, well, in fact, now they have three shifts. They have three, eight hour shifts. You know, the, the people, the hourly people at SpaceX don't work long hours unless they volunteer to, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know, it's the salary people who do, but you know, the, the people who are building that rocket in Texas, the welders and, 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 and people on the ground, um, you know, they work on shifts. And so they created an additional shift. Now they have three shifts and, and he said, well, how many people do, they, do we need? And they said, and this is at that stand-up meeting in the middle of the night. Yeah. And, and they said, um, we need to double our workforce. And he said, okay, well, we'll meet here tomorrow at 8 a.m. And we'll figure that out. So Sunday morning, they, they planned a hiring, a hiring effort that happened on Monday and Tuesday. And by Wednesday, they had doubled their workforce. Wow. So, you know, they don't wait, you know, there's no cadence, there are no sprints, you know, they do think well, as soon as they decide to do something, they do it right then. Um, so, you know, I, I don't celebrate doing it in the middle of the night, you know, I, I, I think people need lives and, and so on, But, um, but what I do celebrate is not waiting that if something needs to be done, you don't just put it on the list for the next time we're going to meet uh, for the monthly monthly whatever. No, call the people now. You know, say how soon can you talk. You know, who needs to be involved? It it shouldn't be everybody because then the, the then it won't happen until three weeks from now. Right. So who who needs to be involved? Have the discussion, make a decision.
1: So the term moonshot. Is often used synonymously with the idea of a Hail Mary. It's you know a huge leap into the unknown, a last gasp effort. In fact, the Apollo program was crawl, walk, run. It was, you know, very rigorous about increasing, increasing the elaboration and the ambition of each mission, and each one built on the one before. Very how not- does this compare to the SpaceX approach?
2: It's actually not too different. And you know, the Apollo program. It's kind of fascinating because you know today we think of NASA as bureaucratic, mm-hmm. but back then it it was a very different organization. And if you if you look at the Apollo program, it went through phases very deliberately. It it, it had a chief architect, Werner von Braun, and you know it had a plan and a vision, and it pivoted it pivoted too, uh, but. Uh, you know, each, you know, first there was Project Mercury and, you know, Project Mercury, the goal was to see if we could safely and repeatedly put human beings in orbit. Mm-hmm. That was, that was it. Once we, and uh, yeah, that was it. And once we did that then Project Gemini was to see what can we do in orbit? And so they, they practiced spacewalks. They practiced docking. Um, and it was always two people. That's why they called it Gemini. So they basically want to see if they could operate in space. And then Apollo was prototyping the actual system that would take them to the moon and back. And there were a series of those of progressive demonstration of capability. SpaceX works in a very similar way in that if you ask Elon Musk, you know, another thing about Elon Musk. And again, I don't want to celebrate an individual here. I'm really talking about kind of the perspective and the The approach. Yeah. Yeah. The approach is that, you know, he, to him, every issue is a business issue and he doesn't claim to be the best rocket engineer in SpaceX. In fact, he'd start out, he started out knowing nothing about rockets. He hired Tom Mueller from TRW and said, teach, he didn't say you do the rockets and I'll do the business. He said, teach me about rockets. Yeah. And he learned. Um, And uh, if, and he's interested and he has his discussion, he has discussions and asks questions. And if you ask him, how are you going to get to Mars? He'll tell you what all the critical points are, what all the bottlenecks are and what number is the decider of whether or not it can be done. Yeah. You know, the, the cost of a pound to orbit, the cost of a pound to Mars, the, the, uh, the thick, the thickness of the steel in that rocket. They just, they went from uh, uh, four to three, I've uh, forgotten it, four centimeters to three centimeters, I think, I'm probably wrong. But they, But he can tell you all the key metrics, you know, and there's a paradigm in business, the one metric that matters, but it's, it, you know, people misuse that, it's, it's not one metric above everything, it's for each cluster of issues, what's the one metric, that kind of makes or break that issue, right? And he he knows them all. He mm-hmm. knows them all, and, and the people who work there know them. They know they're working on this. They know they got to get that metric. They know there's a target metric; otherwise, it won't work. You know, and and so it's always a demonstration of capability. You know, he he, he wants to demonstrate they can refuel in orbit. You know, he wants to demonstrate that the Starship vehicle can take off and land. He wants to demonstrate that they can put the Starship vehicle in orbit. He wants to demonstrate that it then can re-enter and, and survive. He wants to demonstrate that it can reach Mars. Then he wants to demonstrate, yes, it can actually land on Mars. And then so, on. so he views it as these series of capability demonstrations, just like NASA did. One of the things
1: um that strikes me is you know we say moonshot but in my view the shuttle was more of a moonshot than apollo because it was this commitment to an extremely complex and unproven approach to putting stuff into orbit that there was almost no prototyping involved it was the first time they launched was was crude they had people on board the very first time they launched and they stayed committed to that design almost throughout I mean there were there were refinements of course but it was a it was a real departure from this, you know, they could have they could have put an orbiter with wings on top of the Saturn V to try it out. There were all kinds of opportunities to try in incremental fashion. And they wound up with something that was so expensive and unworkable and unfortunately unsafe. Um, they really lost their way. And it seems like they've sort of taken the view, well, we're just going to do commercial instead, at least for the launch market.
2: Yeah, well, Rasky uh, talks about you know, he called it a sparse matrix versus full matrix. You know, what 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 he explained he meant by that was that NASA gradually moved from from an approach of of gradually trying to uh, uh, prove, prove capabilities to an approach of design the whole final thing mm-hmm. and develop a risk mitigation strategy for each potential problem area, and don't do don't build anything until you've checked every box and addressed every risk. Which is,
1: which is, in my view, at least, a true definition of waterfall.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Perfect your design and yes. then fly it the right, the, exactly the way you want the first time.
2: Yeah, and uh, good luck with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, yeah, you do need luck with that. Um,
2: and, you know, these ideas aren't new. You know, if you go back to Skunk Works,
1: you mm-hmm.
2: know, Lockheed Martin, you know, people knew how to do this better. You know, I mean, Skunkworks was all about prototyping and partnership between customer and and vendor, rather than a tug of tug of war relationship. You know, it was about experimentation and um, you small know, a lot diverse of, team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, Kelly Johnson actually enumerated, I think, there uh, 12, are 12 principles that he followed, and they're very they're, you know they're very written in the context of. Contracting, you know, government, because, you know, like one, one of the principles is about, you know, having flexible contracts. And, um, but if you really kind of read between the lines, it's very agile.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, th- that, that is another fascinating subject is the whole uh, contract that is done with other rocket companies, uh, the way contracts are structured, they're often cost plus. Um, they often sort of, one of the things that Dan Rasky talked about was when, when he was at, uh, SpaceX, uh, the requirements document was we need to get to orbit and back (laughs) something to that effect, right? It was very straightforward. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, 100 page document explaining every rivet. Um, but one, one interesting thing he said later on was that um, he's seeing more of that kind of rigor at SpaceX with more requirements documents. And this comes back to the idea or the, the challenge, I think, that on the one hand, a legacy is a powerful thing to have. A legacy is a bunch of stuff, you know, that works, right? Um, but the problem is that when you want to make a change, you are now disturbing things that work. And so there is more rigor required, Um I want to sort of talk about that a little bit with you and 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 cuz I think Agile 2 or Agile or Agile 2 is 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 meant to encompass all kinds of organizations but it, it strikes me that as organizations get larger and more successful and older there's a tendency for that agility to kind of ossify that you, it's almost unavoidable. What are your thoughts on that? Is there a way for a company to avoid Getting tied up in its own success and 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 adherence to the way it succeeded before.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know, there is, uh, but you know that th- there there's so many there's so many elements of that. You know, I, you know, the 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 root is is the culture of the organization. You know, there there needs to be a culture of the right kind of leadership. You know, and and you know if you have that you'll end up with well-aligned incentives, you know, at, you know, Rasky points out that at SpaceX, you know, that they have very well aligned incentives because, uh, you know, there's a clear vision and mission, you know, and, and even if you like just work on a certain program, which usually people do, they work on the uh, Falcon nine, or they work on the starship or, or they work on the dragon capsule or they work on Starlink, um, you know you're working for one program, but 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 the goal is get that thing to orbit or whatever. Right. And they purposefully underpay people, according to Rasky, but give them substantial stock option compensation so that their their natural, at least financial incentive is make this stuff work rather than. Uh, and he gives an example of how there was one team. I had to ask another team to like, like weaken its design
0: mm-hmm.
2: you now in order to accommodate what the first team wanted, and they said they ran the numbers and sure, no problem because it helped meet the overall goal. Um, you know, in a in a large established company, you know, you tend to have fief- fiefdoms develop, and if if managers are competitive, you know, view things in a zero sum way. They, they won't let anyone encroach on their their design or their part of the product or their product or whatever you know so there won't be this cooperation there will be so you know so a competitive culture is is really kind of the root problem there and you know culture you know you know culture is is so important but one problem in the agile community is that we talk about it a lot but we don't really say what we mean by it and, you know, sometimes you hear the word mindset, you know, but also culture. But culture is actually something that's been studied very rigorously for a long time. <laughs> you know, there are very well established, validated culture models. And, and so, you know, I reached out to, I, I did some research and, and picked what I thought was the best one. And I reached out to them. It's called Human Synergistics. It was founded by a man named uh, Dr. Robert Cook. He's a professor emeritus, and uh, you know their culture model has 12 dimensions, and you, you can do a, a, a survey of people and you can actually characterize and profile an organization's culture. you get a tremendous amount of information by doing that, and then you can really see clearly like well, this is why
0: mm-hmm. this is
2: why their transformation is not going well yeah.
0: it's
2: obvious, you know because you know, we can see here, they have a competitive culture. And, and so of course, different groups aren't giving, you know, giving and taking They're they're not working together that well. And people are trying to climb the ladder. And, you know, so culture is really important, but you need to do more than just say, oh, improve your culture. That's not, that's not actionable. It's not helpful.
0: Right.
2: You can actually, um, actually tell them how to do that. And, and to tell them how to measure that and then how to strategize about that. Um, and com- a competitive, internally competitive culture is one way that over time organizations start to ossify, as, as you said. So
1: uh, I love that because um, you're sort of picking on a theme that I'm fascinated with, and that is that um, almost any impulse an organization could have is adaptive under certain circumstances. And so your culture evolves to be appropriate, probably for, for, you know, I I agree there can be decay, there can be corruption. There's all kinds of problems that can happen, but if your culture is, for example, we're very inclusive and we're always going to engage one another on decisions that will give that, that is optimized for a certain set of circumstances. But if you want to compete with Elon Musk, maybe you need to rethink that. Right. Um, And so I, I like the idea of sort of, break, you know, all these things often are breaking it up and then putting it back together again, you know, and the idea of having 12 metrics to look at for a culture, I think are very useful. I imagine one of them is, is, is how quickly you're able to make decisions versus how inclusive you are. There must be something along those lines in that list.
2: Well, that's more along the lines of behavior, you know, okay. so you know, agile two. there's actually an agile two assessment, <laughs> um, And that will reveal that, you know, because it's agility. And, you know, so how quickly can you make decisions? But, you know, the culture will be more about if people are supportive uh, and or if if they tend to just do what they're told versus think for themselves and and those kinds of things. Um, But, you know, an important thing is not, you know, even an organization has a culture, but not everybody's the same in the organization. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it can't be, it, or it won't work well. If everybody were the same, it would not function well. As, you know, as, you know the, um, the most important, the most impactful um, individuals in an organization, you know, this is, this is an area that makes the agile community uncomfortable. The idea that, that people have different roles,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: but it's the reality when you have a large organization, it has to be, it has to be, or won't work. Um, and you know, the people who have leadership roles are the most impactful as individuals and they can't all be the same or that won't work well either. You know, as, as Peter Drucker said, you need an inside person, an outside person and a person of action in any group. Yeah. And, you know, so, uh, you know, the culture of the organization might be a certain way, but certain individuals, individuals have certain personalities and and leadership strengths, Other individuals have other personalities and other leadership strengths. You know, the outside person is like, you know, the classic example is the CEO who like gives interviews and, 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 you know, portrays the company is doing this, and we're trying to change the world and we're trying to do this and that and gets investors. Um, And the inside person is someone who the people in the organization trust and and that person kind of relates to them and they relate to that individual and, and, you know, often that person has technical leadership too, kind of maybe was a founder or kind of knows the subject matter really well. And and then the person of action is what I like to call a nudger, someone who's like saying, well, w- w- um, what's in our way? You know, what are we doing today? Uh, what are we doing tomorrow? And can we do that today instead of tomorrow? You know, uh, what's, how can I help? What's, what, what's slowing us down? You know, um. Because because people will dawdle, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and this is one of the one of the gaps with self organization is there's no nudger. There needs to be someone constantly putting gentle pressure to keep things moving in a positive way, not a neg- not a fear based way, but in a yeah. positive way. Um, so, so yeah, you have your culture, but you have individuals too, and. and Some people in the organization need to be highly competitive in an externally facing mode, you know, because companies have competitors, you know, Mm -hmm. you need, you need very aggressive salespeople. Um, You you might not want to work with them, (laughs) but you need to have them,
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you know. Well, the way you said that reminds me of another thing, another sort of personal uh, fascination I have. Have you, have you heard of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Of course. Yeah. Have you read it?
2: I actually have never read no? that.
1: Okay. Book. It's a shame. I will explain. <laughs> I will, I will share with you one story from it uh, that might <laughs> encourage you to read it. So there's this planet called Gol- Golga Frenchum. and they decide that they want to get rid of all their hairstylists and middle managers and tax accountants and all the people they think are useless and so they create they artifit they artificially create a crisis where they're going to say okay we're going to build three arcs one arc is full of the people who actually get stuff done, one is full of the people who lead, and the other is full of all the middle people.
2: Those are all the fun people. Yeah. The middle. Well, the thing is, what <laughs> happened
1: is they tricked the the B arc people, the middle arc people, and they all abandoned Golgafrinchim and, of course, settled the planet Earth, which is why the way we're, we're the way we are, right? <laughs> and I actually now. As that it turns high. out, Elon is a fan of, of Hitchhiker's Guide. And I actually think that, yeah. that he kind of has a B-Arc view, he, a dismissive view of HR. That, <laughs> and, and you can sort of see that in, in the scandals that come out of SpaceX and Tesla. A more muscular HR department would probably stamp out a lot of the problems that they have. Oh. But the other thing is there's this presumption that self-organization will take care of everything, Right. Which is why it, it doesn't always work. And that's why you sometimes see him coming in and screaming at people. Right.
2: I I I don't see, you know, and I don't work at SpaceX. So I've studied them a lot. And maybe you know some things I don't. And I've read the books about them. But I, you know, I I mean that, you know, in like in the book Liftoff by Eric Berger, you know, he describes in there, you know, and and he interviewed people who worked were founders and And there were some incidents where Elon kind of got very agitated, but it didn't sound to me like he was like a toxic person who would storm in and like make everybody miserable. It didn't sound like that. It sounded like they were under a lot of stress. And like a good example is, um, you know, Tom Mueller designed their first rocket engine and it didn't work. You know, I don't know if you read the book, but, you know, he chose to use an ablative Combustion chamber design.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And over time, it, it led to one problem after another. And that year later, Musk says to him, Okay, Tom, so you built me an engine that's too heavy, that is unreliable, it's not reusable, and doesn't. So, what now? What you know, and so it's you know, and he didn't fire him, no. you know, uh, uh, Mueller continued the work there and then you know, designed the Draco and Super Draco engines and continued to work as So, um, so I think, you know, there have been news reports where like Musk saw someone's code at Tesla and got so upset. And he said, who wrote this? You're fired. But I think, you know, I could see myself doing that, too. If someone wrote really shitty code on something that's a critical system, I might fire them. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, you don't want someone who's doing that in your who knows what else they're writing. But that doesn't mean that that person is a toxic leader. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. You have to look at the whole picture. I've yep. seen videos of even Elon Musk conduct- conducting discussions where he's very kind of gentle and inquisitive and he has a room full of engineers and he says, this is the problem. What should we do about it? And they kind of talk it through. And so, you know, I don't know. You know, again, I don't work there, but... Um, you know a lot of times we read things in the news and jump to conclusions, and I, I just want to be careful that I don't do that um.
1: yeah i'm I'm closer to your view than you might think the way I frame that question and in fact, one of the things I wanted to talk about is you know the the particular anecdotes of him telling people you know rage firing and all this stuff. Most of them are centered around what he calls production hell, that moment in time when they had 500,000 reservations for the Model 3 and no way to build them. Right. And so, you know, uh, I know that you're a bit, you look a bit askance at the idea of a Kinevan, but I sort of look at the time when they were doing uh, the Model 3 production ramp as chaotic in the the, the strictest sense of the Kinevan, this idea that there are times when things when you push and things come, come back instead of going forward, where, where the, the a- cause and effect aren't very clear. And it's under those circumstances that you get into, and there's there's a, an insight from Agile too. Um, I, sorry, it's in here somewhere. Oh, um, that uh, in the leadership taxon- taxonomy, you include command and control. Right. This idea that under certain, you know, under the military under fire conditions, sometimes you just have to tell people to do it. Right. And one of the quotes that comes from that period is in Wired magazine. You referred to this uh, article as well. And there's a beautiful quote in there where somebody went to Elon and said, nobody came up with a great idea when they were being chased by a tiger. I don't know if you remember that from the article. But you know what? If I'm being chased by a tiger, I have exactly one idea. (laughs) And it's a good one, right? right. And I think that under those circumstances, and we can argue about whether Elon should be putting his companies in these circumstances, but when it's do or die, you're not going to be Socratic. You're not going to have a committee. You're going to tell people to do it. And if they're like, oh, but Elon, if we do that six months from now, no, do it because we won't exist in six months if you don't do it. Yeah. Um, So-
2: urgency is a big factor, you know, and, and, you know, it's not all or nothing. It's, it's, again, it depends. It's a judgment. It's
1: circumstantial.
2: Yeah. yeah, Because like, you know, in, in flight crews, uh, you know, in airplanes, you know, there's actually a kind of framework for that, where, you know, if, if you have a crisis and, you know, the, the captain takes over from the co-pilot says, you know, the plane is mine. That's what Sally Sullenberg said when he landed in the in the Hudson River. Right. The plane is mine. And he took control and landed. But um, you know, because seconds mean life or death, and there's no time to discuss, but you know, that you know, even in that situation, you should still be listening. If someone says you're doing the wrong thing, you should be listening because they might be right.
0: Yeah. And
2: you know, so like, you know, if 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 you think there's a fire because the fire alarm goes off, you might shout everybody get out as soon as you can. But then someone might say, wait, no, listen, it's just a test. Oh, OK. Not everybody get out. <laughs> <You know?
0: laughs> yeah. You
2: know? and like like a, a fire chief at a fire. You know, they might in their radio say, OK, you go here, you go here, you do that. And they need people to do that. Mm hmm. You know, but if someone says, I don't think that's a good idea because they should listen. Um, so you know, product development is different because there isn't this huge sense of urgency, but there is some urgency. You know, time is really important in business. The agile community often doesn't recognize that dimension of the problem. You know, a, a group of people you know, developing consensus, well, there might not be time to get consensus. You know, and so like like Rasky gives the example actually of Elon Musk, where you know there's a meeting and it's the only meeting they had, and Elon Musk says after he hears what people think, so everyone's given their opinion, including Rasky, and he says we're going to do that, and the meeting's over. So um, so you know he made a decision as as the lead, but. Um, Again, you know, they, they make choices with 50% probability of success. That's good enough. And if it doesn't work out, they backtrack.
0: Right. You know,
2: and if, if, if the wrong call was made, there's no, Oh, you made the wrong call. You're fired and all that. It's, Oh, okay. We learned from that. You know, now we do better, we'll do better next time. So um, when I, decision-making what, is really important. Someone had, in order to move things along, in a timely way, very often you need someone to just make a decision. But you should first hear what everybody has to say and respect what everybody has to say.
1: So I actually picked up on that story as well and thought it was a really interesting one. And I and I did discuss it with a friend who had somewhat of a different reaction. Because I'm I'm accustomed to yearning for quick decision making. But um, the reaction was, "That's great, Elon the emperor gets to make a decision at the end of the meeting and send everybody going." But what about the people who weren't at the meeting, who didn't get a voice, didn't get a chance to pitch in? What about the other people, even at the meeting, who felt like, "Well, if Elon's decided, I can't say anything." Um, and so there, you in Agile too, there's a principle: provide leadership who can both empower individuals and teams and set direction. And this is classic agile, too, in that there's an and in there. There's this idea that you have to balance between two extremes. Um, how would you think through the, the um, I guess, the, the strength of the way Elon just makes decisions and says, let's move on versus the the, the risk that you're making the wrong decision?
2: Yeah. So... You know, I, I want to emphasize again that it's not about celebrating the person. And I'm not saying Elon is a, a you know a model for everyone to emulate at all. Um, he has strengths and he has weaknesses. And you know, I don't presume to know how to do things better than he does. He certainly gets results. <clears throat> but I you know, I think in that instance, you know, he he clearly does have preferences uh, you know, for how to do things. And I think you're right that. Um, you know, in in a meeting, and this this is this is an issue that's really near and dear to me, uh, be, because indeed in that meeting, my opinion might not have been heard. You know, um, I I know you're interviewing me one on one, but in a group of people, I tend to sit back and not contribute much, because like other people take over, and uh, by the time I decide what I think is best, the conversation's moved on. You know, so I tend to mostly just not say much in meetings. And so my opinion probably wouldn't have been heard. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe, you know, good collaboration, a, a good leader to make good decisions. And you, you do want groups to make decisions when they can. So I don't want to dismiss that. That's very important because then people are invested in, in the idea and so on. But sometimes you're kind of out of time. And so a decision needs to be made and someone needs to just arbitrate. And that doesn't make you bad, it, 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 you know, as long as you view it, as long as you own the decision and, mm-hmm. and as long as, as you view it as, well, we'll try that, you know, and, um, but, you know, a leader, you know, to be able to make a good decision, you have to hear every, every opinion uh, or you have to hear the range of opinions and have good information and have time to think it through well. And if some, you know, if you're not getting the brains of people who don't contribute well in meetings, you're missing out. You right. so, so good collaboration, again, is not a meeting. Good right. collaboration might include a meeting, might include many meetings, but good collaboration about complex issues often involves emails, a white paper or two, Reading, thinking, one on one chats, you know, it, a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. um, good collaboration over time, about complex issues over time. Um, you know it's is not just a meeting.
1: Well, so there's a couple of interesting things about that particular meeting the way the way Dan Rasky described it was, like you were saying, Dan was sitting there watching the meeting and it took Elon to call on him.
2: He asked him. Yeah. Right.
1: So he wasn't leaving anybody. I mean, I mean, Dan was there particularly about thermal protection systems. So right. it was a natural ask. But uh presumably the others did have a chance to speak and then he turned to him. So I, I, I see your point there. That's um, really
2: important. That's really important because you know some some people spend more time, you know, I, I, I don't know if you ever read the book, um, by Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow. Uh,
1: I, it's not a surprise to me that you're a fan of it too, because a lot of what you're talking about in agile too, is like thinking fast and thinking slow. Like sometimes you need a system and sometimes yeah. you need to rethink that system. It, it's yeah. a gem.
2: Yeah, it, it is. And it, it really kind of explained a lot of things to me. Um, but you know, I, I think some people in conversation. Stay in system one and other people immediately jump to system two. Mm. And I think Elon Musk is someone who jumps to system two. Because if, if someone says, like to Elon Musk, how are you doing today? He won't say, oh, yeah, I'm doing right. great. You can I'm see doing. the
1: wheels turning for about yeah, 30 so seconds. Yeah. And
2: think, how am I really doing? And he'll start thinking, like, where am I in my life? And what, like, he'll start thinking of first principles. How am I really doing? And then like 10 seconds later, he might decide, okay, I better say something before they like leave. And then he'll give you an answer. Um, and a lot of people are like that. And so if you have a meeting, a discussion meeting, you see a bunch of people that are kind of silent, and they're the ones who tend to snap to system two. And very often they lag behind the discussion. They're right. still thinking about what was talked about two minutes ago. hmm and so if you don't ask them what they think, you'll miss, you'll miss all of that.
1: Uh, just as a fun anecdote related to that, there was a, a, an interview of Elon on stage. I think it was at Stanford by Steve Jurvetson, who is a venture capitalist. And so Steve asked Elon, and this is, I think, 2018-ish. He asked Elon, so if you could go back in time, what would you tell a younger Elon? And Elon sat there for about 10 seconds and then said, <laughs> All Right. On balance, I think turns, things have turned out pretty well. <laughs> yeah, he was on the cusp of being the richest person on the planet. I, I think he was right, but he, he took 10 seconds to come to that conclusion.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you watch like, an interview, like you know, if you watch an interview of him, you know, I, I, am, I am completely sure that if Elon Musk hadn't become wealthy at a young age, he'd be, you know, he would, if, and he was working in some company, he'd be someone no one pays any attention to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: No one would pay, any, oh, that guy, he's an engineer over in that group, and he wants to go to Mars. He's kind of a nut, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and in meetings, no one would pay attention because he wouldn't say anything. He'd be like. Finally, they go, Elon, what do you think? And he'd come up with something that sounds like it's from left field because he's yeah. going back to first principles. So, you know, he's someone who no one would pay any attention to if, you, if he were not empowered by his, his wealth. We would be losing out on this brilliance because um, he doesn't have a charismatic personality that makes other people listen to him. People listen to him because of who he is and what he's he's doing.
1: Uh, It's funny you say that because he was on stage at one point and and he said, I don't think it was even something he was asked. I think he just led to it himself. But he he said that um, if Nikola Tesla applied for a job at Tesla, he probably wouldn't hire him. (laughs) And you could only... the expression on his face was that like he suddenly realized that maybe he needed to rethink through his hiring practices, you know, (laughs) that it just triggered that first principles in his own mind.
2: Yeah. Because, uh, because Nikola Tesla, um, went to an obscure university and I think had kind of a sketchy academic career. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, he doesn't have a typical, like, you know, uh, illustrious, you know, uh, background. Um, but he obviously was very brilliant. Yeah. Uh, you know, Elon Musk personally interviews, or at least up until they had 3000 people, he would personally interview every, every job candidate.
1: Yeah. That's an amazing commitment. And for somebody who uh, I was saying earlier is not a fan of HR, um, that's an HR practice, right? And and it gets into something I've I've heard you mention before is uh, the idea of agile HR practices, which many people in large organizations are not familiar with.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, HR as as traditional HR is pretty pretty friggin' broken. Uh, you know, HR in most companies really exists. To protect the company from lawsuits and and to make sure the company's in compliance with laws and regulations. that's really its only only purpose. It's not there for the employee really. Um, it pretends to be, but it's it's really not. Yeah. Um, you know there there are movements to like kind of reinvent HR. You know, one of them is is people ops. and the idea of, of people ops is is to more you know to better align HR, with 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 goals and and to and to take account of what motivates people and and how to help people to flourish so that it's for everyone's benefit, including the organization, you know, to kind of embed HR more in an operational context. Uh, so you know that's highly relevant today because we have a skill shortage. And you know today you, you can't hire all the skills you need. Because they're changing all the time.
1: Right, right.
2: I mean, people in the software field are familiar with this. Every time they start a new project, they, they half of the things they've never done before. You know, I mean, that's the norm. There, yeah. People in IT are used to that. Every time you start a new project, like, okay, I've used that and that, but I've never used any of those things. So they're used, they're used to that. And so, you know, if companies try to hire everything they need, they won't be able to hire anyone. Mm-hmm. And so um, so they, they have to think in terms of how do we fill the pipeline with skills and not just by hiring, but by getting people the right experience, by giving them right challenges, by giving them training, by, by asking them what they're interested in so that they can actually then work in that area. It means you have to take someone away from the, their, their current project, which means their project manager might not like that, but move them into another area so they can learn something that they want to learn. Um, mm-hmm. So, so um, yeah, HR definitely needs to be re, re-envisioned.
1: Yeah, and that's um, that, that builds on the idea of self-organization. Maybe self-organization isn't the, quite the right word, but definitely fluid organization. The ability to say, "Oh, it turns out Cliff not only knows fluid dynamics, but he's also got a background in stainless steel. Right. But you might be on the fluid dynamics team and that team has deadlines to beat, and you're not welcome to move on or even be seconded to this other role. And so how how you create that fluidity. And it's interesting that we're talking about that fluidity because the agile mindset is that people are are like are liquid, right? They show up and they can do anything and they can join any team. And, and you're sort of saying, well, hold the phone there does need to be some organizing structure as well. So you've examined that tension on how you create flexibility. You know, it's coming back to this silo idea. What are the practices that a company can follow to, I guess in the the shortest way of phrasing it, allow people to migrate within an organization and still get stuff done.
2: Yeah. So that's a really important thing. Uh, you know, agileists often blame hierarchy, but hierarchy is not the problem. You need hierarchy because that's how you divide up funds. Uh, mm-hmm. But
0: mm-hmm.
2: but the 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 you know hierarchy gets in the way um, because issues today that come up often cut cut across teams and cut across product lines. You know, like that example you just mentioned. You know, where you know someone wants to learn about I forget which way you had it, the the materials or the fluid dynamics, you know. And so they're working in a certain area, but they want to learn about the other area. And the company realizes at a higher level, they realize that there are important products coming where they're going to need people who know that other area. So they do want to move that person, but that would that would undermine that would harm where they currently are. So there's a trade-off. The decision's not clear. You know, there are many factors. And a contextual decision need, needs to be made that looks both short term and long term, and needs to balance those things. There's no right answer; it depends. And so, um, so that's an example of what I like to call a cross-cutting issue that has arisen. It's arisen out of nowhere. You know, it it if you let that bubble up to a hierarchy, you know, for your quarterly planning, that's too slow. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as that issue. A curse, Someone needs to notice it, which means there's a manager who's watching, right. or you know maybe that employee says something. But I don't give that high likelihood. The employee might say to their HR, "I want to learn about this" or something. But but you know someone who has who has some authority needs to hear about it and decide to take action. And the action can't be hierarchical, because it's across cutting issue. So, so managers, like the way Elon Musk is always watching everything and always asking questions. What's happening today? What's going on? What's in the way? What are the, what's new? What are the issues? What, you know, you know that, that constant probing to identify new issues that arise is part, a critical part of leadership. It's actually part of transformational leadership. You know, intellectual stimulation is an important element of transformational leadership. And, you know, the intellectual stimulation is about asking hard questions and about knowing what's going on and stimulating dialectic discussion,
0: yeah. you know?
2: So, um, so a transformational leader will notice these issues. We'll, we'll, we'll detect them. I call that a leadership de- a, uh, an issue detector. And, but then what do you do? What do you do? And what often has to happen today because the hierarchy is too slow is you need to identify who in the organization might be affected and reach out to those areas and put a little team together to work that issue today. Right. Not next planning session, but starting today. Just like in R- Rasky related that example of, he noticed there was a problem and he stood up and looked around and, oh, is that person at their desk? Because I really needed to talk to them. Just like that, but in a larger context, imagine you have 10,000 people in the company, and you know, so you want to change this product, but this product is used by another product. Yeah, that's very common. You know, products are not silos, products Mm -hmm. companies interact with a part of a product suite. So, if you change your product, you might break another product. Yeah, and um, so you know, if if this engineer who knows the the materials needs to go work and f- wants to work in fluid dynamics, you're harming one product to help another. So it might be the right choice, you know, so, but that, so you, you need to identify who's affected having them work the issue, but then a decision needs to be made. And that's where leadership comes in. There needs to be someone leading that issue. And that person needs to be someone who has the organization's interest at heart, not their team's. Um, you know, that's where servant leadership breaks down because it's too focused on the team. You need to be someone who's, mm. who's focused on what's the best global outcome, systems thinking. Right. Um, and that means incentives need to be aligned. Uh, that means the, the culture needs to be non-competitive. So there are all these elements that have to be in place for it to work well.
1: So one of the elements that Elon relies on is company-wide memos. And uh, one of them said, if you have, like, first of all, this isn't a memo, but something he said to his teams often is everybody's head engineer. You, you have to think about the whole thing. And that's an agile two principle. You have to think about the whole thing. Um, and that empowers people to, to think that way, to, to not just be focused on their parochial interest. And then the other element is the company-wide memo that said, if your manager is preventing you from talking to somebody else, Elsewhere in the organization, that manager's fired. That manager needs to work somewhere else. You couldn't be more explicit than that. And this brings us back to, uh, it links a couple of uh, things that you've raised. One is that story that Dan told about the bulkhead not being strong enough for the purpose it was being designed for. And that team had an option. They could spend six months redesigning that part, or they could talk to a neighboring structure, which was the thermal protection system and say, look, You've got extra strength. You got more strength than you need. Can we lean on, literally lean on your part with our part? And the answer was yes. And that is a, a first of all an unusual or, a conversation to have, I should think, but also one that requires everybody involved to be really looking at the overall goal. And it it struck me the way he described that story. It wasn't it wasn't a, a higher uh, somebody higher in the organization. It was, it right. was a sense of a higher purpose.
2: Yes. yes. Right. They and have furthermore, that- and,
1: and furthermore, right. he said that it was, it, he attributed it to, um, what you pointed out earlier, people are a little bit underpaid, but there's a generous option package. And so, whereas you might say, well, my bonus is tied to me, uh, having a very strong thermal protection system, uh, structure. No, you're, you're, <laughs> your bonus is tied to the whole fate of the organization. So think twice before you reject the plea of right. another department. Um, and, and there's a couple of insights or a couple of things from Agile 2 that I wanted to sort of put on the table. Um, one is that collections of technical teams do not automatically collaborate. That's right out of Agile 2. So you have to create the circumstance for that. And then the other thing, it's uh, I think a very early thing you raise is always think holistically in terms of the whole system. So what's your reaction to that? And do you see that in other organizations? Do you see examples of that?
2: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, SpaceX is a little bit unique, you know, as Rasky points out, you know, in that there is this overriding mission. And, you know, so not every organization is going to be able to duplicate that, you know, because not every organization has a great sense of purpose. I mean, some are in it just to make money, you know, or... You know, they, they might have a product, but, you know, it's not a product that's going to like solve world hunger or put people on Mars or, or something like that. It's just like, you know, it's a good product, you know, but, you know, it, it's a business. And so, you know, you, you can't expect that everybody is going to have like, uh, uh, you know, a sense of purpose, you know, like Daniel Pink's Drive. Hmm. You know, start with
1: why all these Simon Sinek. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But but he basically says the things that motivate people are, you know, there's like the sense of purpose and then, you know, plus a a sense of doing your job really well. Like uh, I forget the term he uses um, and then uh, empowerment that you feel like a sense of autonomy, Um, you know, so like the first one, like that kind of inspiration element, um, a lot of organizations can't provide that. Because what they're doing is not all that inspiring. You know, but they can provide the other things. But you know, if 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 the job itself is just not that inspiring, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, you know, I everyone like to work for an inspiring company, but most companies aren't that inspiring. <laughs> you work for a bank, you know, say so you work for a bank, you know, why is that inspiring? You know, uh, it's basically. Well, anyway, well, it's the
1: look on the face when you give a new customer a toaster.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, so if it's not inspiring, then what, you know, what motivates that one group to sacrifice its interest for another group? Right. And and so um, you know, and they're probably not being paid huge amounts of stock. They're probably being paid a salary because you know the, it's a public company already and you know SpaceX is a private company and you can't just hand out stock and so anyway um so you have to have a different way of motivating people to make a holistic decision you know and um you know that that comes down to you know as individuals they might not have a motivation to because there is no over overriding vision or goal or dream or something because yeah. the name for the business. So that means that leadership has to be motivated to, to make sure that like whoever is helping to resolve that issue. Um, and, you know, they, they have to be thinking holistically. So maybe their incentive needs to be based on overall OKRs or something like that. Um, you know, it's an important element. You know, I, I feel that organizations need to, when they do organization design, they need to do leadership design. It -hmm. needs to be part of it. They need to think what, you know, what are the clusters of issues that we tend to need leadership about? How do we make sure that there is leadership about those issues happening? And it doesn't necessarily mean we assigned people just means, is it happening? And, um, what kinds of, what styles of leadership? Are people like autocratic jerks or are they, you know, in, in, are, are, are they supportive leaders, inquisitive and supportive leaders? So, um, you know, organizations and, and what motivations do the leaders have? You know, so, and how are we motivating them and how are we measuring them and incentivizing them and so on? And how are we, you know, uh, it extends beyond the leaders. How are we motivating and incentivizing everyone? Um, so, you know, it's, it's a complicated question and not everyone can solve it the way SpaceX does. Um, uh, sometimes you need, like, like, I, you know, just to, I don't want to go on this one question forever, but I'll give another example. I worked for someone a long time ago who I felt was like in my career, the best project manager I ever had. I've even written an article about it and his name was Carl and he was not inspiring at all. And, you know, so it wasn't like, Oh, we have a great dream. We're trying to change the world or anything like that. Uh, It was the job. And, but, you know, but we loved Carl because not because he was a real likable guy, he was okay, but you know, he wasn't funny or anything. He didn't trade good stories. He wasn't very personable, actually. But um, Carl was Carl's at
1: home waiting for a butt. Right. Yeah.
2: But he was inquisitive and he, he made good decisions and he would talk to everybody every day. He, every day he'd come into my office because we had our own offices back then. And he'd say, how are you doing? What are you working on? How's that going to work? He didn't just want to know what am I doing? He wanted mm-hmm. to know how it's going to work. And he would ask in a supportive way, not in like a critical, how's that going to work? He would say, okay, how's that going to work? What do you plan to do? Okay, interesting. Um, you might want to consider this. Okay. And you might want to go talk to Joe because he's working on something related. He said, okay, well, good talking to you. I'll check and you know, see you later. And he'd leave. And I felt like when he left, I felt like I had just talked to someone who was really interested in what I'm doing and really interested in helping. Yeah. That's the impression I, I got. So, you know, he wasn't inspirational, but, you know, I, you know, because he was supportive um, and he tended to make good decisions because he'd ask people what they thought before he made a decision.
0: Right. And,
2: and so, and he didn't micromanage you. He didn't tell you how you to do your job. He let you come in, come and go when you pleased and do your work your own way. You know, so, um, you know, so. If if you had to make a decision that like sacrifice something for your, of, of your team to benefit another team, I could imagine what would Carl say we should do? And I know Carl would want to do the best thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I would probably behave the way I thought Carl thought I should behave. You know, he provided a model.
1: Yeah. Um, modeling matters yeah. for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let me move on to a story about Tesla, which is another one of Elon Musk's companies, um, Mm. electric vehicle company. And let me, this is a bit of a saga. Let me get it on the table and then I'll get your thoughts on it. Um, Electric vehicles are relatively new and there's optimization to be done to improve the capability, but also lower the costs. And one of the challenges of electric vehicles is you want to heat the cabin or cool the cabin, same with the battery, same with the motor, same with the in-car electronics. And if you look at a Mustang Mach-E, there's a hose for everything and a radiator for everything and a pump for everything. Whereas the the later Teslas have been very optimized around a single heat pump for heating and cooling with the outside air, uh, a single valve that controls refrigerant and coolant to make sure that if you need heat inside, but you want to cool the battery or vice versa, you can do all these things very efficiently and with very low part count. And this is a classic example to me of being able to look beyond silos. Somebody had to say, why are there four radiators in this car? We only need maybe one or two. How do we get people together to, to, to really look at this issue together? So, so I think that's a, a, a laudable example of, of silo breaking, but it's also unproven. And there are stories in, uh, and, and one of the things about Tesla that, that, people in the know like uh, I don't know if you've heard of Sandy Monroe Monroe but his company tears apart cars for the explicit purpose of figuring out how much they cost how they're put together what technologies in them he does YouTube videos on this but he also sells the results to other car makers so it's a pretty good living if you're interested in how cars are made and he um he, where was I going with that well look like
2: About the holistic about Tesla, yeah, yeah, everything instead of 10 different things for every part.
1: Yeah, sorry, I forgot, I lost my track there. But basically, um, oh, sorry, the point he was making is his observation is that Tesla is making modifications to their car design like every week, every day, maybe, right? Um, and that's unprecedented. Generally speaking, you make a, a mid cycle refresh every two years and then a new model four years and then a whole redesign every 12 years that kind of cycle right but they're doing it daily uh-huh. and so um one of the complaints recently is that tesla's in northern climes i'm in canada uh, but it's not that cold here it's only you know minus 20 but in alberta it was minus 40 in saskatchewan it was minus during 40. the day
2: during the day
1: during the day yeah oh my god and so uh the, the Model Y and Model 3 with the heat pump was not generating heat. It was, it was failing. And so 10, 20 people complained about this. There are people in Norway with the same experience. And the reactions were polarized as everything about Elon Musk is. One is they're going to fix it in a week. How brilliant is Tesla for being able to react to this? Whereas you've heard stories about Hondas that don't create heat. And it took them maybe they had to rebuild the car they had to you know change the engine to fix that problem whereas Tesla's going to be able to fix this with a software update so a brilliant tesla but the other reaction was this is a safety risk how can you put cars out there that can't defrost their windows how can you put cars out there that might kill their occupants from the cold very different reaction and so one of the agile two principles is obtain feedback from the market and stakeholders continuously. And that is a claim to fame for Tesla. They just push it out. They'll, they'll make, rolling off the assembly line, the cars are not identical. Yeah. They're going, they're really sort of saying. back in the day it used to be cars were not identical because they were hand-built. Then they were built by machines, they were all the same. Now they're being built with computers involved that can, afford, that can handle the discrepancies, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, they're sort of beta testing all the time, but they're beta testing in customers' hands. What are your thoughts on that? Where would you draw the line if you were running Tesla on how much to put the testing in customer hands versus the 6 million miles we put on a BMW before we sell it to the public?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a matter of, of balancing risk. You know, the public is, doesn't want to be a guinea pig generally uh, for anything that's like important. You know, and you know, I I know if I'm using my phone while I'm driving to which you're not supposed to do, and I don't anymore because I plug it in, but I used to have to look at it for the map. And if if I wanted to to use it and I'm driving and I I you know I call call up the map thing and the interface is different, I could have a car accident trying to figure out why is the interface different than it was yesterday. Where's the friggin' button to like find the route? You know, so, you know, people don't want things that are changing all the time. They mm-hmm. don't, um, you know, so there's that. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure about Tesla, but I know SpaceX is sensitive to this because they, they have different approaches for their different vehicles. You know, the, they, they launch human beings on the, uh, on the Falcon 9 rocket in the Dragon crew capsule. And they have far more rigorous testing for that. Um, you know, you, you, you know, generally, you know, it's, you know, it's a spectrum, you know, the agile community talks about experimentation, which is really good, but you, you don't want to, you know, if, if you fail, you could go out of business or someone could die, you yeah. know? So, um, you need to look at what is the actual risk of failing in production? What's the actual risk? And if the risk is high, you cannot fail. It means you need to make the failure upstream. You need to fail in a test setting, you know? So, um, and and this is not black and white, it's a trade-off. You know, when, you know, like right now, SpaceX, I'm going back to the SpaceX example, because I've studied them, I haven't studied Tesla, but, you know, SpaceX is testing a new vehicle, uh, this this Starship system, and uh, they... You know, at some point they decide when when is it ready to, to fly, to test it, and it might crash.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So when it crashes, they lose a lot of money. Yeah. It, it, it took a lot of money to build that stainless steel thing with the Raptor engines and everything. But it's a trade-off, you know, and if they spend a year designing, that's a trade-off too. They lose time. And, you know, so there's a learning Trade off versus how much they lose if it actually fails, and that point is different for every product. And figuring out where that trade off point is—that's a judgment. That's a critical judgment to make. You know, if human lives are involved, or maybe people might freeze to death in their car, that changes the equation. You you need to mo- you should be moving the failure point upstream to before it gets into actual people's hands.
1: So I have taken us right to the limit of our time. I have a couple of questions left. Do you want me to skip to the last one or do you have time to stick around for a little bit? I have time. Okay. Thank you. Actually, um, my,
2: my wife's driving back from New York, so uh, but she won't be here for a while. So I've got time.
1: <laughs> all right. Thank you. Um so how did Agile 2 come about? Let me, let me hear a little bit more about Agile 2 and the thought process that went into that and, and how you see it as being different from Agile.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I do a lot of like consulting and I had been here, you know, before the pandemic, I'd, I'd started to hear, I, I also do a lot of DevOps work and I, I teach DevOps in various different, different ways. I have my own course. I teach some other courses in DevOps. And I've done a lot of DevOps consulting too. Um, I've helped organizations to create, get DevOps strategies. But um, I'd started hearing like, you know, organizations today, they often like they will create an agile strategy again, you know, because the organizations over time, they go through many agile strategies and then they try again and then they try again. And each time they create a new strat new agile strategy. And now it usually includes DevOps. And I, I start, you know, and so I started to hear like managers grumbling, well, we need to hire agile coaches and DevOps engineers. What if we just get DevOps engineers? So then we don't have to have two different kinds of, of, of things we have to go find. You know, and And I became concerned uh, because I think Agile is really important. But, you know, uh, at the same time, I I kind of could relate to it because I feel like from very early on, the Agile movement kind of derailed. You know, when when Agile came out, I I was CTO of a company. We had about 200 people. And to me, it was like wonderful. It was like, oh, This is great because it's like getting back to what used to work, you Mm -hmm. know, small teams and incremental delivery. And those all made sense. And those weren't new ideas by any means. Uh, But during the 90s, I like to call the 90s, the methodology craze. Suddenly you saw all these methodologies and things became waterfallish. There weren't before. Right. Um, And so 90s became like it was, was very toxic for software development. And Agile kind of like turned the clock back. But then Agile derailed. It got taken over by Scrum and, and by, by all kinds of uh, weird extremes. Like, you know, everyone should self-organize. And, you know, self-organize, organized self there's a kind of a kernel of a good idea in there. It really is about empowering people and giving them autonomy over how they do their job. That's good. But people took it to an extreme. Oh, every team should self-organize. No, that's not going to work. Not most <laughs> of the time. Yeah. You know, are you kidding? You know, my wife's a behavioral therapist. And when I told her about she looked at me like I was nuts because right. she knows about human behavior, you know. And, you know, there, there are behavioral theory models and leadership models that, that will tell us why it doesn't work. The like LMX theory it explains to us very clearly why self-organization tends to not work. Did you say LMX? LMX, leader member exchange theory. You know, it, it basically what tends to happen in a group is someone emerges as the leader and then an inner circle forms around that person. It even right. happens with chimpanzees.
1: Right. Um, well, but- that, that is um, that is um, Jeff Bezos's idea about two pizza meetings. Right. Anything beyond what you can feed with two pizzas, you wind up with somebody who self-proclaims as a leader.
2: Well, it even happens with a one pizza group. If you take a group of five people, one or two will emerge as kind of like the top dog in the group, mm. you know, it almost always, it ha- doesn't always happen, but it usually happens. Um, and it's very often it's benign. It's like someone with very, just the best of intentions, but not always, especially in an organization, it might be someone who like wanna sh- wants to demonstrate that like they're in charge so that they get promoted or something, you know, it depends. But um, you know this this kind of communistic idea that everyone self organizes in this egalitarian way—that's not really how human behavior works. Um, you know what tends to happen is, uh, tacit power structures emerge. You know lines of communication. You know that where people like tend to always like collaborate together versus you know and you know you end up with. You know, and if you go back in time, Max Weber famously wrote about hierarchy as a solution to that. <laughs> you know, to organizations that were structureless, were known for nepotism and favoritism sure. and all this stuff. But, um, but anyway, uh, we were. T- where would we Where did this tent start? This. Well,
1: I was uh, basically. I think you were getting into the genesis of Agile too.
2: Oh, Agile too. Yeah. So so anyway. Um, so I, I had real concerns about the agile movement, which I thought was really important. and was a really good thing. But I felt like the movement got co-opted by special interests, you know, uh, certification mills and these frameworks that were really rigid and, and kind of lost, you know, lost the intention. The true and, agility. Yeah. And even yeah. like Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas were saying back in 2002, what the heck's going on? We didn't say no documents, <laughs> we didn't say no design, you know, what the heck is going on here? You know, so, um, so I felt like the movement had really kind of run, run astray, you know, so the movement was kind of broken to me agile. A lot of agile thinking was broken because it had become extreme and simple minded and, like more extreme is better, you know, like, like, like mob programming, you know, a lot of people, some people like it, that's great, mm-hmm. but it's not for everyone. And, you know, people who are fans of it, often they champion it as if, Oh, it's what everyone should doing. And if you're not doing it, then there's something wrong with you. Right. Well, no, it's what they mean they is
1: don't. you're not just like me.
2: Yeah, exactly. Cause yeah. you know, some people, you know, in groups don't think well. I don't, I don't think well in a group, you know, cause we talked about that before I'll sit back and kind of lose the thread of what people are talking about, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so um, we need to respect that. We need to respect, respect the diversity of way people think and work and everything. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, and agile originally was about empowering individuals, I think was the intention I think that was the intention of it. It wasn't intended to be this extreme thing. Everybody self-organized or else, right. you know, it's, but um, you know, so, so when the pandemic, so I already had concerns about agile, I felt agile was really important, but I had deep concerns about it. And I felt like, you know, it kind of like was really in trouble because people, you know, it was, it wasn't working.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It wasn't working in a lot of organizations. And so if an alternative like DevOps came to perceived as an alternative, people would say, forget Agile, we'll just do DevOps. And then we'll lose the focus on the human side of things, which is really important. You know? And so when the pandemic started, I thought, you know what, let's make lemonade. Um, this is a good time. Yeah. And it, the pandemic kind of proved is proving that people can work remotely, by the way. Yes. Uh, which, you know, so you don't all have to be in the same room and it mm-hmm. can still work. You know, being together in the same room is really great in some ways, but in other ways it's not. It's, it's I can't focus in a team room. I absolutely cannot focus in a team room. I have to leave. Um, you know, I'll, but I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to the cafe where no one knows who I am and put my headphones on. Um, but, um, so anyway, so I put a group together and the two main criteria, so I I put out a call for who's interested, but the two main criteria were you had to have demonstrated that you think for yourself Mm -hmm. rather than just parroting, Oh, everybody use scrum or everybody do this and mob programming, basically, you know, cheering on like fad practices recipes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want recipes. And so people who are like critical thinkers, I wanted. And number two, you could not be heavily invested in the status quo. So if like Jeff Sutherland had emailed me and said, I heard about this agile 2, What are you doing? Can I join it? I would have said, thanks, but no, because you're too heavily invested in what's going on now. And frankly, what's going on now is broken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're your part of the reason. <laughs> 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 but, uh, But anyway, yeah, uh, twice the work and half the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, But, but anyway, um, so, so those were the two main criteria. And then we, then uh, I had a small group at that point and we decided how to, how to conduct it. And we, and we created a matrix of skills we wanted. And so we recruited people who met the criteria, but had those skills. And the skills included like product design and program management and, human resources and and DevOps and agile and and system engineering and all these things and found 15 people. Um, we actually found 18 people and the three ended up two dropped down and one I had to remove because he he was disruptive. (laughs) (laughs) Actually a nice guy, but he like was, uh, became kind of uh, difficult for everybody. But, um, but anyway, um, So then we, we started as a retrospective, basically, we, you know, and, but we were global uh, spanning Vietnam, India, uh, UK, Australia, you know, us, you know, so, um, so we couldn't have a group meeting. It wasn't possible. Uh, And not even on zoom, we -hmm. couldn't have a group meeting. And so we had to, embrace what GitLab likes to talk, call asynchronous communication. GitLab is a big proponent of asynchronous collaboration. They have a whole website on it. Um, and we had to do things that way, just we had no choice.
1: Right. It wasn't,
2: it wasn't, we didn't, it's not like we decided we want to do things that way. We had to do things that way. And which is kind of the new norm, you know, if we're going to work globally, we kind of have to move to that for better or worse. Uh, it's the only way to be, be global. Um, but we, we, so we ended up with this team and we first discussed th- through, and so I set up, uh, many communication paths cause I didn't know which people were going to use. I set up Slack, I set up, uh, a Google drive. I, I set up, um, an email, um, group, uh, in G- in, in Gmail and I, I set up, um, uh, I'm, something I'm missing there was another one maybe a
1: maybe a standing zoom chat or something
2: we couldn't do that
1: well but because, even just with the people who could like divide it up a little
2: you know no one suggested that no, no one suggested that um but we you know there there were a lot of zoom one on ones mm-hmm. um, you know, I personally did did two zooms with everybody, and I i I put on my Socrates hat. I asked questions. I didn't say i I didn't never voiced my opinion. I only asked questions, and I took notes and then I published those notes for the group. Um, and uh, you know because i I wanted to get everybody's thoughts about what do you think is working and not working. And we ended up with this list. And then we discussed the list through mostly through email, some people in Slack and some in Google Docs, but mostly email. Uh, email ended up being 90% of, of the conversation, I would say, uh, just how it turned out. And a deeply nested, we'd have people using like 15 different colors, <laughs> deeply nested emails. Yeah. Um, some people like that and some people couldn't follow that. You know, And so what I did was very laborious. I would copy what people said into Google Docs. Mm. I would have to read through. You had to roll it
1: up for them. Yeah.
2: Oh, God. I was spending all day doing that, um, copying people's opinions and pu- putting it into a structure, into a Google Doc. And the two issues that ended up being contentious were um, the whole introvert, extrovert issue and how mm. people collaborate that ended up being very contentious, um, and and uh, the leadership from the point of view of self-organization ended up being contentious, you know, so, um, so those ended up becoming, uh, there were several issues that ended up getting their own issue document, maybe like 10 of them, where we actually created a document to talk through an issue, and and so that ended up being very hierarchical and different points. And what do you think about this? And you know, this relates to that. And um, and so finally, we got consensus. You know, I basically was the facilitator, and we finally got consensus on things basically. And and then we had a contest of drafting a rollup of that into principles. We we first rolled that up, and there were like a hundred principles. Well, that was too many, so we had a contest to distill that. And I came up with one, but but the one we ended up using was drafted by Raj Nagapan. He was one of the group. And um, and we voted on that, you know, and we we, we had to get, if we couldn't get a hundred percent consensus, we would talk through, why are we not doing consensus on this? So we ended up with a hundred percent consensus on those principles. And we also took took our, retrospective items and group them under the relevant principle mm-hmm. you know so that you could see the reasoning behind the principle you know this this principle is here because we felt there were these problems and we had these realizations and so on related to this principle um so you could see the why right and 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 then we you know we wrote and we we already had i think at that point narrative explaining the principle so it wasn't just like a statement a naked statement it actually said you know, this principle, but then it actually had an explanation of what the principle means. Um, and then it had the retrospective items under, if you go to this, it's a lot of content. If you go to mm-hmm. the site. Um, yeah, the
1: website is very rich. That, that was a great fishing hole for questions today, for sure. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and there is a summary. If you go to the site under resources, there's there's a selection, Agile 2 in a nutshell. There's a mm-hmm. one pager that kind of summarizes Agile
1: too. So one of the, one of the, uh, I, I work at a university in computing. And of course, one of the challenges we've had recently is this sudden move to everybody being online, Uh, same as everyone else, but it, you know, it had some facets of staff, students, faculty, they all had were impacted in different ways. One of the exciting things uh, both as a podcast host and as somebody working under those circumstances is, you know, when you are mediating most of your communication through the computer, all of a sudden you're talking to people who really share your specific interests as opposed to a coffee pot down the hall, right? And that this book is that writ large. I mean, you're talking about people around the globe. Um, But what what strikes me is you're applying Agile 2 principles to the process of writing a book about Agile 2. And so my question is, uh, and, and this is the last question, I promise you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. The last question is, did did your thinking about what Agile 2 should be change as a result of applying it to coming up with the book? And, and what lessons did you learn?
2: Well, not the book. I mean, my own thinking changed in the course of developing Agile 2.
1: Agile 2, sorry. Yeah, that's uh, what Agile, I mean. Yeah.
2: Definitely. I changed my mind, my own mind about those two contentious issues, um, my opinion, ended up being, being shifted on those two things. Um, you know, personally, I, I'm, I'm sure there are others who had a, a learning experience too, um, you know, but uh, it, it definitely did move my own thinking. Um, you know, there, there were some individuals who were steadfast in their disagreement um, you know, about about those issues. And so we had to talk it through. And it required like really peeling the onion. Why do you think this? Why do you think that? And so that leads to that, why do you think that? And what's your assumption there? And we had to really decompose, like especially for the leadership issue, we had to really decompose. And that's how we ended up with a leadership taxonomy, which is on the website but you know i mean we're not claiming as that like you know we don't put any attention on that it we we had to create it in order to have the discussion about leadership that's why we have that yeah. um and so we kind of pulled together pulled out leadership into a lot of different dimensions and situations and um you know i i felt like i learned a lot through that process from um, some of the other, other members.
1: Yeah. Cliff, thank you. I, I have learned a lot from this conversation. I'm grateful you came on the show.
2: Thank you, Tim. It was a great pleasure. Yeah.
1: My you. guest today was Cliff Berg. A link to Cliff's LinkedIn profile and the Agile 2 website, and the videos of Dr. Dan Rasky from NASA will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology.
0: Thank you for listening to the unusually well-informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the unusually well-informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation.